Welcome, everyone, to another episode of That Wing Sky. Joining us tonight will be the show's uh, production agent, I guess, is Freddie Blish, because Freddie has been uh, uh, booking a lot of interviews here lately. So, Freddie, thank you very much for the connections you've been helping us make. Well, uh, thanks for inviting me on, Lee. When you, when you invited me on, I'm like, well, I'm a D-list celebrity. I don't know why you want to talk to me. All I know is I want to get more uh, hits than John, John Hearn. That's all. <laughs> Well, you've passed the test right there. You, you passed the test. I, uh, you can tell I've listened to a few of your podcasts. <laughs> absolutely. Oh, he's going to love that because he, he, he downloads the episodes as soon as they hit on Monday morning and listen to, to them as he goes for a run on Monday morning. Right. And so I, I'm going to be anxiously waiting for the text message when he, when he gets that. And uh, well, I taught him. It's going to be out here in Phoenix in August that I'm planning to take uh, is, uh, two, there are two lecture classes I'm planning to take them. All right. I, I was in Michigan teaching this past weekend, and there are several people who've listened to the show. And one of them was like, I really enjoy the what all the banter picking on John Hearn and all these things. Like, <laughs> it's getting so bad that I'm starting to feel bad about it. I'm not going to stop it. I'm just starting to feel <laughs> bad about it. So I tell both he and John Murphy that they're the older brothers that I didn't really want, but I kind of like. <laughs> yeah, the, the uh, what's what's uh, interesting. I'll apologize to the audience. I'm I'm here at Gunsight teaching a class this week, mil, a class for some military primary marksmanship instructors, and so I'm in what's called the bridal suite of the gunsmithy. Now, this was the house built for Robbie Barkman uh, that has the gunsmith at shop attached, and now. The, the living quarters are instructor, instructor quarters, and I'm in the what we Pat Rogers always called the bridal suite it was the master bedroom, and uh, anyway, so the lighting in here isn't the best, and uh, so if I fade in and out or look dark and then it brightens up, I apologize. Well, that just adds to the to the ambiance of the whole thing that you're there at Gunside in the Smithy. Yes, yeah, and mm -hmm. and uh, you know, a quick aside, you mentioned John sure. Murphy's name, and uh, you know, I've known Murph since 1990 four yeah. Uh, it, yeah he was he was uh when i was a company commander he was our battalion intelligence officer yeah cool. known him that long yeah wow great people he was a, yeah he was a, he was a rock star then i just wish john would come out of his shell <laughs> yeah he's just so mild-mannered and, yes. and <laughs> I, I just wish he would come out of his shell and I, i'll tell a funny john murphy uh anecdote here is when I do my safety briefing, I talk about the fact that if you drop a firearm, just let it go, just yeah. let it fall rather than, cause when you start trying to grab at it and you know, fingers go yeah. into trigger guards yeah. and everything. And I said, what I want you to do is I want you to picture John Murphy as that little Disney princess singing, let it go, <laughs> let it go. And once you picture that, you can never get it out of your mind. I've hosted Murph a number of times for his, uh, you know, street encounter classes, which is an awesome class. Right. And, uh, you know, he does that whole frozen, let it go, let it go. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've seen him do it, so that's why I use him. So uh, I, I have stolen it from him, and uh, I do that here, you know, when we teach teach the gun site. And, and I said, you know, let it go. Unless it's a SIG 320, then let it go and run. <laughs> <laughs> uh, at the state training facility here in Georgia, about three or four weeks ago, an instructor fumbled a draw and tried to catch the pistol and discharged a round and the round hit a student and another instructor wow yeah wow. and so it's it's it's, it's a thing 
It is a real thing. Absolutely, yeah. it is. Right. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you would tell the audience who you are. Uh, Freddie Blish. I uh, grew up in Vermont, uh, actually a uh, sixth generation Vermonter. I, my family uh, is uh, lived in Vermont before it was a state, actually when it was Republic of Vermont. It was, you know, Vermont became the 14th state. It was a very bedrock, hard, conservative state up until about the late 80s, early 90s. And then the, uh, as we called them, the Flatlanders, uh, the people from New York City, Boston, Connecticut started moving up and the politics started changing because, yeah. you know, Bernie Sanders is from what, Bronx or Brooklyn and Howard Dean's from Long Island. None, none of them are what we call real Vermonters. And unfortunately yeah. it's turned Vermont into the Oregon of the East Coast. Uh, but I, uh, I grew up in Vermont, uh, except for two years, uh, my, my dad, moved us out here to Arizona. My grandfather, my namesake, his dad had emphysema. And so uh, late 60s, early 70s, they, they had to move to Arizona at Wickenburg for health reasons. And when my grandfather was getting near the end, and my dad wanted to be there for his mom. And so we, I went to seventh and eighth grade here in Wickenburg, Arizona. And so Arizona's always been kind of my second home. So when I finally kind of moved here, retired here, uh, uh, you know, it, it didn't feel out of place. I have an aunt and two, two uncles that live out here. Uh -huh. So uh, that's kind of my background there. From there, uh, I did finish high school in Vermont. Then I went to uh, the nation's oldest private military college, Norwich University, uh, which is in Vermont. Uh, originally founded in Norwich, Vermont, but then uh, they had a rivalry with Dartmouth. And uh, they supposedly, the some of the uh, students at Dartmouth came over and some of the shenanigans accidentally burned down the, the barracks uh, at Norwich University's barracks in Norwich. And so they moved to the geographic center of Vermont in Northfield. And, uh, and so I, I went to uh, Norwich University in my freshman year, uh, originally was looking, you know, uh, wanted to be a pilot, you know, so I was like thinking like, oh yeah, like Air Force, you know, and but there were always, there was a handful of Marine officers that were graduated from Norwich through the platoon leader commissioning program. And as a freshman rook, I, they just stood out. And I said, that, that's the route I want to go. And I had, during high school, I had read the book Short Timers, which the movie Full Metal Jacket is based on. And, and I, of course, was like, yeah, I'd like to be a Marine. But, you know, I didn't know how Marine officers were created and didn't know enough about marine you know marine aviators and stuff and uh when i found that out i went that route and uh you know everything was good until they tested my eyes and they you know i have 2015 perfect vision left or my right eye my left eye was 2020 but i was like a slight astigmatism and i was like 0.25 percent outside the waverable limit and i'm like well okay what do you want to do do you want to still be marine contract they said yeah i'll go ground and so then i and went that route uh, as an officer of the Marine Corps. Um, and uh, I was uh, at the basic school when you you go through and you pick out the MOS you want to do. And I had an environmental engineering degree. So I thought, well, my family, was, oh, yeah, do it, you know, be a combat engineer. And I'm like, but well, I really want to be infantry. And they're like, no, no, use your, use your degree. And so I went combat engineer. And I don't regret it. I had a great career. Uh, but my temperament was more always infantry. So I one one of those you know few regrets in life I probably should have gone infantry but you know my life would have been a lot different so that is what it is uh and then of course uh when I was at first combat engineer battalion when I was a company commander is when I went at Murph and uh Murph uh as 
Murph's background is really interesting because he was actually in the Army National Guard first. And if I remember right, and Murph can correct us, but I remember Murph telling me that he had actually been a second lieutenant in the Army National Guard in Michigan. But when he came into the Marine Corps, because he only had an associate's degree, they're like, no, you got to be enlisted. And so he was a sergeant uh, and we needed a second lieutenant as our intel officer. And our battalion executive officer, Jim Hill, Major Jim Hill, was a he was awesome. He was a great, a great XO. He calls division and he's like, look, we rate an Intel officer. Uh, you know, we need one. And they're like, well, we don't have a second lieutenant, but we've got something better. We got this guy, Sergeant John Murphy. And that's how we met Murph. And, and uh, Murph was a rock star even then. And, uh, you know, Murph, of course, uh, get, eventually got out of the record when, you know, to where he went and did, you know, rock star stuff there. And, and uh, I met, Gary Greco through Murph actually. Right. And, you know, uh, uh, Murph was uh, doing, Gary would do these things at, uh, up at Fort Meade in Maryland, the weapon craft once a month. And through Murph, I'd started going up there and, uh, you know, shooting with Gary and Alan Booth and, you know, uh, um, a lot of, a lot of guys, you know, mostly Marine, SF, Secret Service, you know, alphabet agency guys, and uh, really, really good, good stuff. And, and, and for me, the, when I, uh, as an officer, uh, or actually any Marine, we will have our primary MOS, and then we do a, what we call B billet. And as officers, you either go to the drill field, to babysit drill instructors, or you'll go recruiting, or you get to do a cool B billet. And I got lucky, and I did the Marine Security Forces. And so um, I did, uh, and the difference is you got Marine Security Guard, they're they, they, they guard the embassies and they work for State Department. Marine Security Forces was a CNO asset and we did anti-terrorism. And so uh, I went to Marine Security Forces in Panama and then we were assigned a collateral mission also to reinforce American embassies in Latin America. And we worked with South uh, U.S. Special Operations Command South, uh, actually worked with the 160th a lot. They were, they were, they were the guys that would do our insertions. And, uh, and the shooting packages that we would go through um, were pretty intense. And uh, I remember um, when I went through the Marine Security Force Supervisors course and then through the Close Quarter Battle Trainer course, uh, I, the name Bob Young kept being brought up. And so I knew of him. And then when I came to Gunsight for my first time, July of 2001, and I took the 250 pistol class, it was because Colonel Cooper had come back to Gunsight. Buzz Mills had bought it and he started hosting Jeff he would let Jeff would teach two or three classes a year and they were called the master's class and I wanted to sit at the foot of the master and I'm going through the 250 class and I went up to lunch at Bob Young's house one day and I said sir is it my you know perception or is it like the marine security force supervisors course and the marine security force uh course for the young marines uh, it's mirrors all the 250 stuff and and he's like absolutely he goes when general gray had tasked them to change the marine barracks uh marine debt uh you know um all over the marine security forces they sent him and chris Bourne, who interestingly enough he had chris Bourne and i served together at mar for pack later i didn't uh no actually i served with chris before that i served with chris before I went to Gunsight, but I met Chris 
And, uh, and he said, yeah, they, they went to all the shoot, Bill Rogers, Shaw, Gunsight. And he said, Gunsight's curriculum was a curriculum that met the Marine Corps' needs for what they wanted to do. And they'd already, Force Recon had already been sending guys to Gunsight, the old guys, Delta, I mean, LAPD, Metro, D platoon. I mean, a lot of the early SEAL teams were all sending guys for Gunsight back in the early 80s, uh, mid 80s. Uh, and so the curriculum here really carried over well for military law enforcement training. And yeah, Bob said that, no, absolutely. We, we basically stole Gunsight's curriculum and brought it back to the Marine Corps. And, and uh, he goes, that's why it, it seems so familiar to you. It did. It, it was, it was, it was, uh, you know, cause it all translated. He goes, the stuff from the handgun to the shotgun, to the carbines, to the sub guns, it all carried over. And it was, you know, it was all very uh, applicable. So uh, anyways, uh, as my career went on, uh, eventually um, after 9-11, I was in uh, at headquarters Marine Corps when 9-11 occurred. Uh, and uh, interestingly enough on that, I was actually, we had uh, stood up a urban breaching course, we called it the uh, Advanced Urban Breaching Mobility, Advanced Urban Mobility Breaching Course for the Marine Corps combat engineers. We had, we had worked with the Marine Corps EOD guys that were already running a dynamic entry course. Um, Cause all in the, with the Marine uh, force reconnaissance community, when they would on, when they were deployed on a Marine expeditionary unit, special operations capable, and they were tasked to do an extraneous hostage rescue. They had EOD Marines with them to help deal with IEDs as well as do the breaching. So the Marine Corps, EOD guys were all doing the breaching, but we realized that we were going to need this for urban environments. Uh, in my experience, both in Panama and uh, elsewhere, I'm like, one surgical shooting is going to become a priority in the next battlefield, and we need to be able to do urban breaching. And I was the Ockfields uh, as a major. We, you know, those of us that are, are majors in staff positions, we jokingly refer to ourselves as the Iron Majors, but I realized that we needed to get this stood up. And we were able to get it stood up. So I attended either the first or the second one as the Arcfield sponsor to just to go through it and see what it was about. So I'm at that course in Quantico and I called my boss up at headquarters Marine Corps just to check in because it was on a break. And he's like, yeah, it was plane just hit one of the towers. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. I mean, was it foggy, rainy, whatever? No, it was clear. It was, you know. And then as I'm talking to him, he says, oh, another plane just hit the tower. I'm like, holy shit. So we knew it was a terrorist attack at that point. Well, everything starts locking down. And, and uh, my wife just happened to be at Henderson Hall, headquarters Marine Corps that day for some kind of spouse class or something. And the plane hit the Pentagon. And of course, Marines are running through Henderson Hall and, you know, like, say that, you know, don't move, stay here, blah, blah, blah. My wife is like, no, you don't understand. I'm going home. No, no, you're safer here. She goes, no, no, you don't understand. They're attacking you. They're not attacking me. I'm going <laughs> home. They're not going to fly a plane into my house. And so she, she gets home, took her several hours, of course. And uh, everybody's calling her like, hey, is Freddie okay? And she's like, Freddie, Freddie's down in Quantico. I was there. <laughs> And uh, so anyways, uh, a year later, I make it back to the fleet. Uh, we spin up to go over to uh, uh, Kuwait and then into Iraq. And uh, after we do OAF-1, 
and I'm just observing the training and I'm just like, we, our marksmanship program, we were, everything was still geared on competing at Camp Perry. I mean, the combat marksmanship program outside of the force community, the reconnaissance community, the Marine Security Force community it is still very much kind of competing on a one-way range, not fighting on a two-way range. And, and so I really started uh, advocating hard to get Marines to uh, gun site, to high-risk personnel course in Quantico, to wherever we could get Marines to start getting them focused on fighting on a two-way, train-to-trainer stuff, get them these guys trained up so they can come back and train our Marines. And in about, uh, I want to say it was around 2005 that finally the Marine Corps started spinning up a combat marksmanship program. And uh, we had already had one going at my unit uh, and getting Marines ready for that. And, and uh, you know, we stepped on some toes doing it and I made some enemies in Quantico when I did it, but it was the right thing to do. Um, and, uh, you know, I got, you know, some people kind of upset at me, which probably didn't help my career. I know it didn't help my career at all in that regard, but it was the right thing to do. And it, it was getting uh, those Marines, because at that point it was like, look, you know, we found out in Iraq is like, they didn't want to fight us. They wanted to kill us. And that meant more IEDs. That meant more, you know, uh, close range engagement stuff, uh, all of the things that we needed to be doing. Um, and those, you know, sending Marines to, you know, places like Gunsight was, was imperative to start getting them there. So after I retired from the Marine Corps, um, I then worked for Aimpoint for four years as uh, director of military business development for Aimpoint. Uh, and uh, interesting, an interesting note on that is that Pat Rogers, I took a 223 carbine class at Gunsight in May or April of 2004. And uh, I remember going with iron sights and it was always, I, it was John Farnham, Gary Greco, all of us at that time were like, oh, if it has batteries, we can't trust our lives to it. Bye, you know? And so I'm in this class and Pat's the instructor and it was, you know, uh, during the night shoot and, you know, and I was still on this thing about not trusting anything with batteries. And finally Pat looks at me and he goes, Freddie, you have batteries for your white light, right? And like, yeah, you get spare batteries too, right? I'm like, yeah. So what's the big freaking deal is the other word, uh, you know, because you know, Pat, uh, about carrying a spare battery for your, you know, for an aim point. And I'm like, okay, you know. So a year later, I come back for the 556 five, carbine class. Now I'm running an aim point. Now I'm, I'm switched on now. <laughs> and, uh, and so before that, it was so funny. Here I was like adamantly opposed to like aim points and, you know, because of Pat, I ended up going to work for Aimpoint after I retired and, uh, and became, you know, a disciple, if you will, of, of uh, you know, good quality, you know, red dot sights right. on, on, on guns, both starting carbines, shotguns, and now handguns. Absolutely right. believer in that. And, and uh, after Aimpoint, went to work for LaRue for about a year and a half in a State Department contract and then worked for Ropar for uh, six years, worked for Robbie Barkman. And I'll tell you, Robbie was probably both, and I, and I worked for some amazing officers in the Marine Corps, uh, great guys. And but Robbie rates right up there with with them as a leader and uh, as as a, as a civilian boss, he was my best. I really enjoyed working for Robbie a lot. And and uh, he and I used to have some just amazing conversations over coffee, just about old school gunsight stuff and you know, metal finishing and just, I learned a lot from Robbie, precision rifles, all that stuff. 
yeah, wealth yeah. of knowledge. So let's if, if we could go back to the optics for a moment, uh, can you talk to us about the early adoption of, of red dots and stuff or any kind of the yeah, optics you know, it, with the military? It, it's funny, the military class I'm teaching today, I gave that little history on that because uh, most people don't know really the infancy of using red dots. Um, a lot of people think it was, you know, like late 80s, you know, with uh, USPSA. But actually, it goes back to World War I, uh, collimator sites. Uh, in World War I, uh, when they began firing long-range artillery, they needed to have, you know, back like Civil War and else before, it was more line of sight, you know, the guys oh. would kind of line the guns up on what they were wanting to shoot. And, you know, it, it like even had sights on those cannons. Well, oh. now they're firing howitzers and uh, they needed to have aiming stakes. And so they had what they call collimator sites, which would... The closest thing for people, if they're not familiar, would be like a Armisen or Trijicon OEG site where you have a fiber optic or a tritium uh, that you look through a tube. You can't look through it, but you can see the fiber optic or the tritium. And then your non-dominant eye then sees the target or in this case, the aiming stake and the brain kind of lines them up. Well, that originated with World War One. They had collimator sites and it progressed through World War II and Vietnam. And, and, um, and during the workup for the Sante raid in Vietnam, where Army Special Forces were going to uh, rescue some American POWs at, in a prison camp Sante, which was outside of Hanoi. And they had CIA and had imagery showing that there were prisoners there. Um, and so they're they're doing a workup training down in uh, uh, Homestead Air Force the Air Force Base in Homestead, Florida, um, to kind of replicate it. They build the whole mock-up of the whole camp, and and the idea was that they had C-130s would be flying. Uh, um, I don't know if they were Puff or if they were Spectre. If they had changed to Spectre at the time, but basically Spectre gunship C-130s who would fly the banking circles, and they would fire out. Uh, white star parachutes to illuminate so they could see during the night raid and and shoot well they were still having really really bad uh, hit rates uh, at night even with the flares so one of the the SF guys says uh, you know I'm reading this gun magazine there's an ad for this site that says that you know aid you in low light no light shooting so they, they bought one. It was uh, a United Kingdom, a UK company called Normark. And the site was called a single point. And it was, you know, and so they, they bought a couple of them. And, you know, uh, at the time they were like $50. I think it's equivalent to $350 today. And uh, they, they had some mounts made so they would fit on the carry handle and they put them on and they started testing them. And then they, they found that uh, the hit rates improved almost 75 percent wow and uh and they start so they bought them for every, everybody and they, they put them up on the gal fives which you know basically is a car 15 you know but doesn't have a forward assist those were uh air force issue at the time uh, and so they, they put them on gal fives and they had amazing success rate with them uh but what they found and i, I demonstrate this when i do occluded eye uh, drills and it just demonstrated again today with the eight guys I'm training that uh, when you have people shooting with a collimator sight like a single point or you 
block or occlude the, op the uh, objective lens on your optic, about 20% uh, will have difficulty. They're, it's a neurological thing where their brain has difficulty lining. Dominant eye sees the reticle or dot. The non-dominant eye sees a target and their brains will have a hard time putting the images together to the point where past 10 yards, if you're, right, you're a right-handed shooter and you have this problem, your rounds will literally be off the target at 10 yards. Uh, and if you were left-handed, they'll typically be off the target at, uh, on the right side. And it has nothing to do with cross-eye dominance, nothing to do with it at all. It's, it's, it, and I've, I've talked to a doctor about it, but he was, it wasn't like, uh, I think he was a neurosurgeon, but um, I really want to talk to an ophthalmologist who really, so I can understand the real reason why it's happening. Uh, but it, it is a, I've, I've been reading medical stuff, which, you know, for my simple marine mind just goes over my head. It's not in crayon and there's not enough pictures. So I have a hard time totally understanding it in a, uh, well enough to explain in a layman's terms, but it is a phenomenon that I have observed. And it's about anywhere from 10 to 20% of the students, you'll, you'll see that happen. So anyways, from the single point, uh, you, Armisen, you know, developed the OEG. And I think Trigicon bought it and uh, the OEG, Trigicon. And then, uh, and then they began with the ACOG uh, teaching, uh, you know, both eyes open, or they call it the bend and aiming concept. But it really, that concept, that, that both eyes open, you know, concept, that was occluded eye. That, that was in use long before Steve Benden put his name on it. Uh, but the aim points were developed right about the late 70s, early 80s. And uh, began, basically, it was finally, they were able to develop an optic that you could see through, and the red dot was projected on the objective lens. And uh, that really was kind of a game changer for, for the red dots. And, and the USPSA pistol shooters began adopting them and using them on pistols and with good success. Uh, and uh, the early tier one guys were using the old uh, aim points, uh, the Mark threes and, and others, the 3000 models on their carbines. And they were getting good success with those. Uh, the battery life was the problem. It was, uh, you were talking a thousand hour battery life uh, at best, which, you know, when you ask people, well, it's a thousand hours. And um, you know, they, they think about it and they're like, oh, I don't know. But a thousand hour, you know, think about it. You have 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh -huh. So seven times 24 will give you an idea of what, you know, uh, you know, what you get. So you're looking at a thousand hours is basically 41 days. Um, and now because of the advanced circuitry technology and the LEDs that Aimpoint uh, uses, and, and those LEDs are made in the U.S., by the way, interestingly enough, uh, while the optics are built in Sweden, the, the LEDs are made here in the U.S. And uh, they're getting now, uh, you know, 50,000 to 80,000 hours, five to eight years uh, or seven years battery life, which a, year's, a, a year is 8,760 hours. So when you say, you know, 10 hours. Now, that's at a setting that you, theoretically you can see in daylight, but in a bright day like out here, you're going to have to bump it up a couple notches, which means your battery life is, is going to diminish. It won't, you're not going to get five years. You might get two or three. Yeah. You know, but you know, a lot of people, you know, they like every, they, oh, January 1st, change my batteries and they'll change the batteries out in their optics. But uh, with a, 
Comp M4 with a, a AA lithium battery, you could put that in, turn it on a brightness setting, which is setting 12 of 16, which you can easily say in day, daytime use, and you can leave it on for 15 years. And I used to joke with the soldiers that, you know, when I teach classes to them about it, I'm like, yeah, put a double A, fresh double A lithium battery in there, hand it to a soldier and, you know, tell them to come back in three reenlistments and you'll change the battery, you know? <laughs> and, uh, but they're, it's pretty, pretty amazing what Aimpoint uh, has done. I mean, they're, they're simply the, you know, the, the most rugged, most durable, reliable optic out there for that use, which is why they've won, you know, uh, three separate military contracts where they actually competed against, you know, uh, other optics makers and all the other ones who either the, they wouldn't hold zero past 6,000 rounds or they fall off the gun or the, the, the optic itself, you know, just, you know, would start wandering zeros and whereas the aim points, you know, they just, they just survived and they're the only ones that would ever make it through the, the uh, all of the durability reliability tests that the military will put them through which is why all the contracts that were competed aim point one the ones that were awarded uh because of a congressional you know favor yeah the other other optics would get those but yeah the ones where they had to compete yeah they never made it yeah yes yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing how that happens isn't it mm-hmm. if people understood some of the stuff that went on in procurement yeah, yeah, uh, of items. Yeah, and, you know, a couple of congressmen from a certain state will earmark, you know, X millions of dollars for you know stuff for the military, but it's got to come from their state. You know, yeah. oh, okay, I know who that is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you you know, sometimes by the way the the bid is written, who's going to get the contract? Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You know, and and uh, the uh, and I'm not talking about. You know, Trigicon products, they're a great product. They're, they're very yeah. durable, very rugged. I wish their glass was better glass. They, they get their glass, I believe, out of Shot House in Japan. And uh, they could ask for, I think, for higher quality glass, but I think it's a price point thing. They realize that, you know, they, they yeah. you know, uh, if they get the better quality glass, that price point's going to go up and that could impact yeah. their sales. So I, I get it. But yeah, I wish their glass was better. Because like the glass that Aimpoint uses come from Zeiss. That's they use Zeiss glass, which is why it's so good. Very, very good uh, quality glass. Yeah, Aimpoint makes good stuff. Uh, we've got them on all our patrol rifles, and of course, the only pistol optic we have approved right now is the RMR. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. but we are, but we are looking at expanding that. I I run RMRs on uh, my Glock 19 and an RMR CC on my Glock 48. I like the RMRs because of their lightweight and everything. Uh-huh. The only downside, of course, is there it's an open emitter. And uh, you know, I just taught a class recently where I had that uh, my one of those guns I was using, and I was a carbine class. So I go down to a prone, I come back up, and I mean, like all the dirt and dust is on the front of my. <laughs> you know, inside the emitter and on the mm-hmm. gun, you know, so because I go to do a transition and I'm like, okay, that's a big blur. <laughs> yeah. I'm seeing all the, you know, the light refracting off of the dirt and dust on the lens. I'm like, well, okay. You know, yeah, but, the, uh, the, the, the one reason we're looking at expanding it is, you know, with the RMR, you do have to take the optic off to change the battery, yes. put it back on, do the whole zero on process and everything again, where say something like an Acura P2, yep. Yep. You just slide the battery out. Yes. Yeah. I've, yeah. That'll, uh, I've got an Acro P2 in my future for, uh, I've got a SIG M17 that I use for the military classes. And I'll probably throw it on that one. Yeah. Yeah. 
uh, we, we do have some of the guys asking about the Holosum products, and I know that's because of the price point, but they seem to work. There, you know what? Uh, if Frank Woods and I, and you, you, I'm sure you know Frank, uh, and he and I are, are, are kindred spirits in this regard, and we piss a lot of people off when we say it. But no, don't get me wrong. Uh, Holosun has moved from California to Texas, so technically they're an American company. However, comma they use a Communist Chinese Party company to build their their optics. They're very rugged, very. I, I've yet I've I've been seeing watch them from their infancy, and they've come a long way. So durability, reliability, I will not knock them. I think that they're they're a good product, and their price point is good because it's made in China. And I'm not knocking the Chinese people, I'm knocking the Communist Chinese Party, because any technology you send over, design any of that, they're going to manufacture for it, they steal. And then the profits all go to the People's Liberation Army. So uh, when I can, I try not to buy products that I know will fund them. As you all know, it's hard to avoid not buying stuff made in China. Uh, But when I can, I try to. And I'm not knocking Holo Sun. Uh, for durability, reliability, and if someone says, "Hey, but that's what I want to run," run it. That's your money. You spend yeah. it where you want to. Just for me, my time when I was at Marine Forces Pacific Command, you know, this is all pre nine eleven. This was literally uh, over twenty years ago. We looked at, you know, the Communist Chinese and the People's Liberation Army. We saw, we saw, we foresaw them as our future military antagonists. I even predicted that. Uh, within 20 years, they would have their own version of the Monroe Doctrine for the Pacific Theater, and they're almost there. They're getting ready to declare that. So they're a little a little longer than I thought they were going to do it, but they've done it. We're getting ready to do it. Uh, and so they're a current economic political antagonist, and I hope it doesn't happen, but they very well could be a military antagonist. I just don't want to fund them. That's just uh, me. Uh, you know, what people do with their own money, uh, you know, that's that's their decision. Uh, but that's just me. But I can't, I can't poo-poo them and, and say, oh yeah, they're garbage. They're not. They're, they're, they're a good product. They're, they're a good, durable, reliable product. They, the, the, the engineers that are designing it are doing good stuff. Uh, yeah, I, it's, it's more of a, a uh, political perspective right. that I take on that. Um, where I will say is that you'll hear these people talk about wanting green dots because the green is easier on the eye and it's all true. But the reality is, is it's the light spectrum. Your red, your, your red is on the higher end of the spectrum, closer to IR, which allows more light transference. If you're gonna, if you wanna see green, that means you gotta have uh, more lens coatings on the lens in order for the, the green, the color green to refract back. And that means that you're gonna have less light transference in low light, no light situations. So green is not a great color if it's gonna be an optic you're gonna use for like low light, no light work. Red is a much better color for that. Um, that's one of those things a lot of people don't understand, you know, that they, they you know, they, they're like, oh yeah, but I want a green. And I'm like, cool, have green, but just understand that it will impact your uh, ability to um, uh, see things in low light, no light through your optic because of that. Uh, which is really interesting. I'll go back to um, reason why, uh, like Aimpoint, as, and and now Holosun, and 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 of course by uh, the Sig Romeos are made in the same factory that Holosuns are, are made at. Um, that what Aimpoint did is that originally, so you would have uh, a red dot 
And what it is is raw light that is passing through uh, the, the tube and then all the other color spectrums pass through and red is what reflects back to you. So the early optics, the reason they, their battery life was not as good is that they would use a bulb that was um, a large bulb, a lot of light, but they would have a membrane that be in front of it and with a hole in it that just allowed the amount of light you wanted to go through the hole to reflect back off of the uh, objective lens. So you had all this light being used to produce just a little bit of light that was needed. And that's why your battery life wouldn't last as long. Well, what Aimpoint did is they changed the whole game when they went to their advanced circuitry technology and they started using smaller LED lights that allowed, you didn't no longer had this membrane there and you only use the amount of light produced by the LED that you needed to produce the dot to reflect back to you. But that's why those dots aren't perfectly crisp circles because it's raw light being projected there. And so that's why you'll sometimes see it more of a, some people based on astigmatisms or whatever, will see more of a spider or, you know, kind of a pluming kind of a, a dot vice a real round crisp dot. That's the difference between, uh, you know, the older uh, optics and the new ones. So that's how that, uh, that's how that's done. Um, but because you're only using the amount of light you need, then you're not drawing as much light as, or power uh, for the light. And that's why you're able to literally, you know, basically use as much, if not even a little bit less energy than a battery setting unused on a shelf as it just discharges energy naturally to, you know, for, for an aim point, which is kind of interesting that, you know, how uh, uh, smart they were with that technology to develop that. Interesting. Interesting. You know, it's, I remember kind of the, the transition of when red dots first started showing up on law enforcement rifles. Yeah. Yeah. And um, it's funny in 2020 before the world ended, I took a class through the federal law enforcement training center and we were not allowed to run optics on yeah. our rifles in that class. And I'm like, it's 2020. I know. <laughs> we reached by 2015 uh even really i would tell you 2011 we reached a point with red dot sites definitely with the aim points that uh the likelihood of failing was was you know i mean I, that's when i would start you know i mean i'd had conversations with you know super dave harrington you know that's dave and and dave is like freddie i don't even run backup sites anymore these aim points are so reliable uh, <laughs> I, I still run backup irons on mine i'm just an old school guy right. but honestly i can't tell you the last time i needed to use them i, I really yeah. I, yeah. Uh, yeah the, the only and it's not a failure because the the equipment worked exactly as it was supposed to yeah. i have had some deputies that refused to change the batteries yeah. yeah in their aim point and one of them showed up to to qualify this year and he's like i can't see my dot and so i, I took it and i'm looking at his rifle and i get to monkey around with it and i could get kind of an intermittent faint yeah. uh, uh, dot to come up i said hey man when's the last time you changed the battery he said, they told us, and his response was, they said the batteries would last five years. Well, I said, that's not what I asked you. I said, when yeah. is the last yeah. time you changed the battery? Yeah. Well, 
I have it. Well, I bought the optics, so I know how old. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so like, well, we're all changing the batteries in these optics <laughs> <laughs> right now. And so okay. we went, we ordered some and we put them in because, you know, if they're starting to, you know, it's just, if that's the thing that, that gun people don't understand when it comes to mass issue of, yeah. of items is yeah. we tend to think of things in our own terms. Right. But that's not how the mass of people, yeah, are going to respond to them. It's, yeah. and I can't can't blame them because no. computers and cars I know nothing about. Well, and and uh, and when you know they're told five years, but okay, well, what's that based on? How old was the battery when you put it in? Because if it's already a couple years old, well, yeah, it's not going to yeah. go five years. The five year battery life is based on you know a brand new battery coming from Duracell endpoint. Yeah. A big proponent of Duracell batteries for their optics. Yeah. Brand new battery, right from the factory at Duracell. Put it in, and yeah, mm-hmm. I would think it will go five years. But yeah. you know, my my wife bought a bunch of. Uh, I said, hey, I need some new 2032. So she bought some 2032 batteries off of Amazon. You know, and God knows where they came from. And and so I'm up here, and you know, what, and one of my you know T1s decided that oh, yeah, battery's time to be changed. I go to change. I put one of the fresh battery in. Came from Amazon nothing yep. put another one in nothing uh, so you know, i had to go to the pro shop bought a duracell threw it in optics back to running again so so even then you know you depend on the quality of the batteries you buy you know it's yeah uh, you know that's a factor yep and you know we, we have to remember who the end users of the products are yes and a lot of times they're not us right right yeah i used to have a running joke with our communications commander like, I don't need to know how the radio works. I yeah. just need to know that when I press the button that it's going to work. Yeah. yeah. And as long as you make sure that happens, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> just go make it happen. That's all I need to know. The, uh, I used to tell my uh, communicators or actually, you know, I jokingly refer to them as confusicators. Mm-hmm. I said, you know, uh, it's all FM to me, effing magic. <laughs> I just, uh, uh, yes, but we had a vendor come. Uh, for something they were upgrading with the radio system and he started trying to explain it to me and the and the 911 director stopped him and said he doesn't care he just wants to know if it works or not yeah yeah. and it needs to work when we press the button yeah (laughs) as far as i know it's like magical demon sending smoke signals and stuff yeah exactly and it works now start asking me about the gun stuff and well yeah exactly yeah Yeah. (laughs) and and it's funny when you know vendors would come and they'd be trying to sell something i would say well you know mcgillicuddy over there is our guy for that go talk to him and if he wants it i'll give him a check yeah yeah. but don't explain it to me go go talk to that guy over there that that knows about this stuff yeah um but it's we all get hung up on this stuff that because we know it, we think everybody knows it's going to do it the same way. And that's just not the case. Not the case. case. I remember, I don't know if you know Dean Caputo or know of Dean Caputo. I've heard the name, but I don't know him. Dean was a range master here at Gunsight. Uh, He's a retired Sergeant Detective out of uh, Arcadia PD in California. And Dean is also one of the Colt Armor instructors, you know, and, uh, with uh, travel around like Wayne Dobbs used to when he worked for Colt or Frank Moody and uh, uh, Dean anyways, uh, he, for his department, he, he bought uh, a number of uh, uh, aim point sites for his patrol rifles, micros. And I was, you know, getting set up uh, with some LaRue, you know, QD mounts and stuff. And he's like, no, I don't want those Freddie. And he goes, but yeah, they're, but they're 
good mounts. You know, oh, they're great mounts because I love the room mounts because you got to remember, I'm putting these on patrol rifles. I don't want these, if, if there's a QD lever on there, there's going to be pulling the optics off because I want to mount. So we got Daniel defense mounts where they were like bolted on with like blue or red Loctite. I mean, it was not going to come off the gun. <laughs> oh man, well, my agency that I started with adopted patrol rifles. Um, Bushmaster had the state contract. And so that's who we got. Yeah. And um there were rifles were assigned to the patrol cars. They weren't assigned to the individual cops. Each each car had had a rifle, and I pulled a rifle out of a car to shoot a qual one day. And as I went to the prone, I noticed that the the uh, aperture was moved all the way over to the left. Somebody riding around in the car had been absentmindedly playing with the optic and everything. And at that point in time, we had, like I said, it was a pool car, so you didn't have any choice. Uh, we had the AR-15s and we had Remington 870s in the car. And I made up my mind that very moment that I was stepping out of the car with the shotgun because I knew what I could do with the shotgun. I didn't know who had messed with the rifle. Yeah, no idea where that was going to impact. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, you know, I shot my qual. I passed the qual, but I didn't max it. And yeah. I was so mad. And I went and re-zeroed the rifle afterwards. And, you know, from then on, as part of the inspection, which I should have done, you know, I looked at them and made sure that, okay, the, the aperture is at least close somewhere to the center. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. you put witness marks on there, but even then it doesn't matter because <laughs> they do a full rotation. It's gonna, yeah. it won't matter. <laughs> and if there's a way for a cop or a soldier or Marine to screw it up, they're going to oh, screw it up. They'll do it. That was, I told the engineers at uh, any point, you know, the Swedish mm -hmm. engineers, you know, and uh, I said, here's who you're building for. I said, if I take two Marines, and I put them in a room with no doors or windows. I give each bill, each Marine a steel ball bearing. And I come back in an hour. One of the ball bearings is going to be missing. The other Marine, the other ball bearing broke. And neither Marine will know how it happened. I said, <laughs> That's who you're building for. <laughs> or one of the ball bearings is pregnant. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Deputy sheriffs and cops are about the same. Yeah. Same way. Yep. Same way. Well, let's uh, shift gears here and let's start talking about uh, your association with Gunsight, some of the characters that have come through there. Well, it was uh, so I had been reading, you know, of Jeff Cooper, you know, of course, uh, from college, you know, and, you know, reading him in uh, Guns and Ammo and, you know, uh, kind of uh, following a lot of what he was teaching and, and everything. And um, uh, so was a young lieutenant you know, in, in the, uh, the Marine Corps, I had wanted to come to gunsight. And then after I'd gone to the Marine security forces and everything, and that, that was uh 90 to 93 timeframe and uh, definitely wanted to come, but he had then sold gunsight and, you know, he had the falling out with uh, he whose name shall not be mentioned. <laughs> I won't call him the names that uh, Bill Jeans calls him, <laughs> but uh no, Richard G. And uh, uh, anyways, uh, I, you know, and of course they had the falling out and, you know, uh, you know, Colonel Cooper was telling people not to come. And, yeah. and I'd written to Colonel Cooper, you know, a couple, couple times, a couple letters and he would respond. And I was, you know, really kind of shocked that he would take time to write me back. It was thought that was, you know, uh, pretty nice of him. Uh, well, um, 
Colonel Cooper, you know, buzz buys gun site, Colonel Cooper's teaching again. And I'm like, I got to come sit at the foot of the master. So this was July of 2001. So this is literally, uh, it was last week of July. So we're like a month away from you know, five or six weeks away from 9-11. I mean, I didn't, we didn't know that, but I mean, came, uh, took a 250 pistol class with uh, Colonel Cooper, uh, was the range master, but uh, Ed Stock, Ed Head, and uh, Dave Harris were the... Uh, uh, coaches. Um, but really Ed Stock was the range master. Jeff did all the lectures. He would ride behind the line on his trike and, uh, instill trichophobia amongst, amongst the students and, uh, uh, did the 250 class, uh, did it shot very well. Um, I, I, interestingly enough, uh, I, I shot it with a Glock 21. Um, and I, the only thing I did was I, I had uh, tritium sights, I had a, a minus connector and a uh, hearts recoil rod. I was, otherwise it was stock. And I won the man on man shoot off against a really, really solid shooter, Boulder patrol agent, uh, Tom Osborne. And Tom was running a 1911 and we, it was a heated back to back. I mean, he'd win one, I'd win one. And you had to win by two in order to, to win. And I mean, and, and man, we were going back and forth. And, and uh, finally, I edged him out. And now I didn't hear Colonel Cooper say this. But my friends that were uh, with me, Gene Simmons, the Glock star, not the rock star, good friend of mine, I met him in Panama, he was American Red Cross worker that one of the he was one of the top 10 Glock shooters in USPSA at one time, he was really, really good shooter, still is. And uh, uh, Gene said he heard Colonel Cooper say, after I won the man on man with a Glock 21 and shot very well in the course with it, he says, maybe there is something to those Glocks. <laughs> and, and it had been a nine millimeter. I don't think he would have said that because it was a 45. <laughs> I'm sure that's why he said it. And uh, so I got to, of course, uh, you know, because I had, I was a major at the time and I had, uh, uh, you know, represented the regiment, well, so to speak, you know, and, and, and everything, uh, it, it kind of built a good relationship with the Colonel and myself and Janelle and, uh, you know, became, you know, you know, close with them after, uh, I came back, uh, for a gas match in 2002. I got trans, you know, of course, left headquarters Marine Corps, July, 2002, got promoted Lieutenant Colonel, came back to, uh, West coast. And we're in the workup phase for deploying to Kuwait, uh, to OIF. And uh, uh, I came over for gas and I, you know, had a sit down with Colonel Cooper and Colonel Young. And, and uh, within the unclass realm that I could, I shared with them kind of like, here's kind of what we're looking to do. And of course, they both loved that. Of course, Colonel Cooper really loved it. And, and then when I would come back for classes, whether you know, I did a 350 pistol and 223 carbine and a 556 carbine. And when I'd come back, uh, the Coopers had always had me over to their house for dinner one night and I'd get him up to date on how the war was going and what was going on and, and all that. And I think he really appreciated that. And, and uh, you know, one of the things with, with, with Colonel Cooper is he didn't suffer fools. If you couldn't keep up intellectually in a conversation, you wouldn't get invited back. Now, I don't know if he was the one who was inviting me back or if it was more Janelle, uh, but uh, yeah, the, and after uh, the Colonel had passed and I would come and I, I, I was invited on staff. You're not, you don't give 
gun site your resume and say, I, I want to teach here, you get invited on staff. And that's based on numerous range masters looking at you. Like I had Ed Stock for both uh, my 250, 350. Giles Stock was really the range master, but Ed Stock was one of the coaches. But, you know, Ed, Ed and Giles, of course, one of the range, they were both range masters. So I, uh, and then for carbine, it was Pat Rogers, both two, two, three and five, five, six. I had, I had Pat as a range master and Ken Campbell was a coach in the five, five, six class. Uh, but anyways, they, they'll, they're evaluating you and then they'll kind of go like, you know, if you're interested, you know, we'd like to have you come on staff and then you get invited on staff and then you have to apprentice uh, three classes. And that means on your own time, you don't get paid. Uh, and you come and you teach and you get evaluated by range masters who did not recommend you. So in this case, Ed Stock had recommended me, so he could not evaluate me. And so it had to be, so Steve Hendricks was one of my evaluators. Dean Caputo was another. And interestingly enough, I only had to do two. I didn't, they didn't ask me to do a third. They were like, you're good. You don't need to do a third. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. Um, and then, uh, uh, I would take leave uh, and, you know, and come and, and teach a class uh, a couple, you, you know, they liked you to do two a year. So I would take leave and come over and teach a class until I retired. And then, and then, uh, you know, uh, they'd had full, you know, after I retired, I still had full-time jobs. So I still was only kind of only able to come over a couple times a year and teach until I finally got semi-retired. And then, then I started uh, teaching now, anywhere from one to three classes a month, depending upon the need. The last two years, we've been very busy. And uh, so I've been teaching a lot. Um, and uh, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's been an honor. Uh, you know, we, the, I've told people this, uh, that, you know, some of the, and I've trained with a lot of really good instructors, you know, outside of Gunsight, you know, uh, you know, Larry Vickers, Kyle Lamb, uh, you know, John Farnham, uh, uh, you know, Masai Ub, uh, you know, a, a lot of really good instructors, but, uh, you know, Ernest Langdon, I mean, it, but I'll tell you that still uh, some of the best instructors that uh, I've worked with are here at Gunsight and, and you don't know their names. That's the interesting thing is you, you would never know their names because one, they, you know, they just, they teach here primarily because, you know, it's not, they're not making a livelihood out of it. It's more post-retirement or, you know, uh, and, and, then, and they do it for the love of the tradition that Gunsight has. And, right. and uh, but the, the beauty of it is that um, as instructors, you know, we get, if you're an instructor here, you, you know, you get one free class here at Gunsight. So you can come here and take a class. That's good. I, and now, you know, I went for like 10 years where I only was able to take one class, you know, and now I, I, I take advantage of it. The last three years I've been able to take, you know, uh, one, of the, one of the free classes a year. And, uh, but I still try to take two to three classes with other instructors outside of gun side a year, because um, I learn from them. I learn a lot from them. I all take, I, I, you know, I blatantly take stuff from them. I give credit. I mean, I give them credit and, and, but all the other instructors here do the same thing. And, and so there are a lot of times like we're, we're, we're we never work. Uh, there's a number of us that live locally, but locally, I mean, within 100 miles, and we teach a lot together because yeah. if there's extra classes and they call us, so we, so we teach more than others. But there's a number of instructors that I may only work with once a year, and uh, but they're taking classes outside of Gunside, and they'll they'll teach a particular part of the 
curriculum and they'll use some verbiage or, a, or an analogy or something that really has some good, you know, like, wow, that, where'd you pick that up from? Oh, I got it from so-and-so. Cool. You know, and, and I'll adopt it. And so the benefit in that is Gunsight, while we're not, you know, big on, you know, the flavor of the month, hey, what's the new cool thing? Let's teach that. No, we're, we're very evolutionary in, our, in our, our curriculum. And I'm glad that it's that way, because that way we don't, uh, you know, start teaching something that eventually goes, yeah, that was dog shit. No, we, we really spend time uh, and we have a range master conference where we'll sit down and debate it you know, and, and go like, you know, is this how we want to teach this? And, you know, what are the pros and cons? What are the reasons? And, and we really, we'll, we'll discuss it thoroughly before we'll make yeah. the decision that, that we're going to start teaching that in the curriculum. Some things are easy where yeah. it's like, yeah, that's a no brainer. Yeah. We just add it, but there's stuff that was yeah. like, it's a, a really kind of diametrically different than what we've been doing. And then mm-hmm. we, we won't arbitrarily do it. We will actually right. take the time and discuss it and yeah. really think on it. Yeah. Yeah, and that, you know that's one point there too. Is you said range masters conference, so there's a, there's more than one range master, so you got all right. these people there. Not everybody's going to get what they want. Yes. Not everybody. Not everybody's going to get what they want in the time frame that they want it. Yes. Whereas, say, like, I'm a one man show with my company. Yeah. As far as well, I have the magnificent Steve, so I can't say <laughs> a one man show. Uh, but pretty much, I decide their curriculum. And yeah. if I decide I want to change something, I just change it. You just change it. Yeah. Yeah. Or I come up with another class title and right and start doing something into that. Yep. I don't have to satisfy a group of people. Yep. And get them going. And so people will say, well, it's frozen in time or whatever. Well, I'm pretty certain that there was a lot of investment made in adopting a red psych or pistol mounted optic curriculum into the 250. Yeah. Yeah, and and into the three fifty and this yeah. and so forth. Uh, I met Ken Campbell at the Rogers Shooting School. Yes, when he was there as a student with some yep. other gunsight people. So it's yep. it's it's not like it's all right. This book was written in nineteen seventy. We got to stay stay true to it. No, no, no. And, yeah. you know, and Jeff evolved, but now yeah. Jeff was the same thing. He was not a flavor of the month guy. Right. He would he would spend a lot of time, you know, uh, and this is a Robbie Barkman word cogitating yeah. on, uh, you know, yeah. on, uh, on, on curriculum. And it was yeah. funny because, you know, Robbie, you know, would say that if, you know, someone had something they knew they wanted to introduce, yeah. uh, you know, if they went directly to Jeff, he'd get, they'd get pushback. They would bump heads. <laughs> You know, and it wouldn't happen. Uh, but as Robbie said, they would come to Robbie and they'd be like, right. you know, and Robbie's like, no, no, you go to Janelle and you talk to Janelle about it. And then and sure enough, the next day, Jeff would come in and he goes, you know, I've been thinking about this. <laughs> and, and, you know, and sure enough, you know, they would begin at least talking about it and thinking about it and then figuring out how they wanted to, you know, to, to adopt it or adapt, you know, whatever it was. And uh, that was uh, always, that was kind of the way to Jeff was through Janelle. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Janelle, Janelle, quick aside, Janelle was a grand lady. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, Jeff called her the Duchess, uh, you know, because of her, her, her family history. There was an Earl who was, I think, a, Nor- uh, a Norse, uh, either Norwegian or Swedish mm-hmm. Earl. And, uh, and uh, so he called her the Duchess, you know, because of that. And, but she was just a grand lady and mm-hmm. she was my third grandmother. Uh, I, I had two wonderful grandmothers, uh, you know, she was my third one. And, and, and I, if I was on the ranch teaching and I didn't go over and say hello, the next time I came, 
she would see me. Oh, Freddie. Oh, oh, I heard you were here, you know, a month ago. I was really disappointed you didn't come and see me. That was my ass chewing from Janelle. <laughs> that was the kind of lady that Janelle was. And uh, just, you, you know, if you looked up Lady and Webster, her picture's there. I mean, she was just yeah. that. Uh, that era, that classiness, and you know, and you know, I've seen pictures of Janelle and her. She was a very, very beautiful young lady, and I mean, just you know, just this class, just a very you know, class. Yeah, great, great, great lady. And and yeah. and, and she was as mentally sharp up until the day she died. I mean, when she was ninety nine, you swore she was fifteen years younger. I mean, she was just amazing, an amazing lady. Excellent. Excellent. You mentioned uh, one of the stocks. Could you elaborate on the Stock Brothers? Well, the Stock Brothers, uh, what's great about this. So Jeff wrote in Cooper Commentaries one time that he he declared five in, uh, instructors here that had taught at Gunsight, at least at one point anyways, uh, to what he called the master instructors. Pat Rogers, Louis Auerbach, Ed and Giles Stock, and John Ganaway. And I had, I've had the fortune of meeting John Ganaway uh, via Jeff's daughter, Lindy. Uh, I was at a, a rendez- uh, uh, Robert K. Brown rendezvous at the NRA Whittington Center. And it, it was at the same time that the uh, Teddy Roosevelt Society, which Jeff started, they would meet every year in that month in October uh, around Teddy Roosevelt's birthday. And I happened to be there, saw Lindy. When, and she introduced me to John Ganaway, but I did have, so I only got to meet John, but I definitely got to train under Pat a lot, uh, Louis uh, and the Stock Brothers. Now the Stock Brothers only trained under here at Gunsight at, at my 250 class. And then because I got an e-ticket in the 250 class, I could have jumped to the 499. And, um, but I found out that Ed and Giles Stock were gonna teach a 350 class together and I said, that's not ever going to happen again because our schedules just won't align. I'm, uh-huh. I'm going to take that. And so I took the 350 class so I could train with Ed and Giles. And, and it was a great class. They were really, really phenomenal uh, handgun instructors, right? really good. Um, and, uh, you know, so I, you know, uh, really, really, Ed Stock, I kind of looked at as my mentor uh, when as an instructor here at Gunsight and, and handgun stuff. I have a number of mentors. Steve Hendricks is another as well, of course, but, you know, Ed was kind of that guy as, as, as uh, I would try to emulate as an instructor. Um, I'm probably more opinionated than Ed, but at least try to emulate him a little bit. Uh, and then, uh, and of course, Giles is a good instructor and, uh, and Louie was the master diagnostician. I mean, he just could diagnose shooters like unbelievably. It was just master at it. And, and, uh, with Louie, I, I, I had Louie come and do shotgun classes for my Marines. And, and uh, I mean, they learned so much from him. It, it's, you know, we, were, we had just gone over to the new, you know, Joint Service Shotgun, which was interesting. It was called the Joint Service Shotgun, the, M, uh, the, the M110, uh, you know, Benelli's. I think the Marine Corps, maybe the Rangers did adopt it, but I think the Marine Corps was the only one really adopted it in mass. And, uh, you know, uh, and so, you know, Louis really, you know, put together because, you know, for you to carry the shotgun downrange, all you had to do to carry a shotgun downrange in Iraq was shoot 20 rounds through it. And I'm like, you don't even know how to run the gun at 20 rounds. Right. I, I, there was no way I was going to let that happen. And so I, 
I put together, uh, I got with Louie, did it, you know, we did it, he had him come out to California and, and uh, do MTTs and, and teach, you know, the Marines really how to run those guns and uh, did, a, did a very good job. Another, another good instructor for the shotgun. So Louie, Bill Jeans, Louie, and Scotty Reitz, if you want to learn how to fight with a shotgun uh, or here at Gunsight in our 260 class, um, that's where you go. But you want to learn how to run the shotgun, Rob Hot. Rob Hot, you know, just the the mechanics of running a shotgun. Rob Hot's the guy, and then to fight with it, yeah, Louis, Scotty Reitz, and and you know, here at Gunside, Bill Jeans. Of course, Bill doesn't teach anymore, sadly. Um, they they were the guys that you went to to learn how to fight with a shotgun, and and not that Rob couldn't teach you, but his ditch is really learning how to run run the gun. Um, that uh, interesting story with Louie one time. So Scotty Reitz, I'd just gone to work for Aimpoint. I, I literally had one of the first micros in the country. This is March of 2007. And I'm like, this has got to go on a shotgun. So I got a hold of Hans Vang, had him put a piece of pick rail on my 870, my Vang Comp 870, put that optic on the, on the gun. Didn't even get a chance to zero it before the class. And I show up and Scotty's like, Freddie, that optic isn't going to hold up to the recoil. Blah, 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 blah. Well, and of course, I'm trying to get the, the zeroed, and, and mm-hmm. it was a nightmare. I mean, it was trying to, you know, not knowing enough about the optic, not enough knowing enough about the optic on the shotgun, all at the time. I, you know, I was holding up the class, and it was just a nightmare, right? So I finally get this thing freaking zeroed. And uh, so now everything's kind of flowing all right. You know, Scotty's teaching as a team, it was a Scotty and Louie were teaching this class together. So Scotty would teach half the class at one part of the range and Louie would teach the other half and we'd kind of switch, you know? So we go, I'm over there with Louie and Louie's teaching transitions and, you know, Louie's we're at the 35 yard line, you know, Louie, this, you know, South African accent, you know, well, some of you, you, you know, would have to probably transition at 15 yards and, and some of you might be able to, tra- you know, transition to a pistol at further distances, like, like myself here at 35 yards would probably be where, would be where I would 35 yards and closer would be where I would transition. And I stuck my hand up in the air and like, Louis, yes, Colonel, does that include rattlesnakes? <laughs> and Louis, Louis looks at me and he goes, Colonel, with all due respect, fuck you and fuck Pat Rogers. Louis. <laughs> Lee is laughing. I'm laughing. And the whole class is looking at me like, holy shit, Louie's going to kill him. You know? <laughs> I have heard the rattlesnake story. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but so we go to the night shoot. Scotty's got some steel out like 200 yards, right? And you would shoot. It was, oh, maybe it was, maybe it was 120 or one. I know it was, it was past 100 yards. Maybe it wasn't 200 yards. And we're shooting slugs. She would shoot two standing, two kneeling, two prone. And I've got the micro on. And when I rang steel, you know, two, two, two. And Scotty looks at me and he goes, Freddie, I want two of those for LAPD Metro now. <laughs> I'm like, okay, Scotty, got it. <laughs> yeah, so that I made Scotty a believer in the micro uh, at, on that, in that class. Ina, I. I went to shotgun 260 at Gunside. It's the only time I've been out there. And I, I've told this story, I, th- I think, on there before. Um, you know, I'm running an 870P with the Trigicon sights that replace the rifle sights. And the steel targets 
the my front side is bigger than the steel yeah and since then, I have set up a Beretta 1301 uh, with an aim point on it. Yeah. And I'm curious. Well, I want to run some of those courses of fire again with that aim point, see what the oh. difference is. It, uh, it's, it's so easy. It's cheating, leads. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. And, and I was stubborn. I have an 870 with MMC Ghost Ring sights in the truck. But no, I got out with this one. This is what I'm going to take the class with. Yep. And, uh, yeah. So I, I really, I want to go, I want to run it twice. I want to go run it with my ghost rain side shotgun and I want to run it with the aim point and see what the difference is. Well, we, you know, sadly, we, we ended up having to break the 260 shotgun down from five days to three mm-hmm. because just people yeah. have a hard time, you know, controlling the recoil and getting yeah. it up. And uh, some of the instructors have finally adopted the reverse weaver is basically what rob hot teaches is kind of you know reverse isometric push pull Mm -hmm. stretching the gun and uh and that's that helps because that you know those people that you know the old school method of like tighten your shoulder i mean it would just beat the snot out of you and yeah i had rob do a couple classes i brought some of my marines up to do a class with rob hot he was teaching up in uh prado and uh Mm -hmm. It was interesting. So I, I, I had a, uh, they, they, they were, they were going like, Hey, we got the new joint service, uh, biological, you know, chemical warfare suit. And if you want your unit to, you know, test it for us, cause they have to do these, uh, tests with it, requiring the Marines to wear them like all day training them all that. And we'll give your unit like $50,000, you know, you can spend it whatever you want. I'm like, done. <laughs> Sign me up. <laughs> and, uh, and so, I, we went up there, we all had to wear the suits and with that money, I was able to you know, pay the tuition, you know, to, to do the shotgun class with Rob hot. And, and I had, had a couple, uh, you know, small statured Marines in the class and, you know, we shot, you know, like six or five or 600 rounds in two days. And none of them had bruises on their shoulders because of that mm-hmm. reverse, you know, isometric push pull. And uh, yeah, it, that that technique works we had a a couple i'm not sure if they were married or not but they were there as a couple in in the class and the female half of the couple was shooting an 870 with an older fold over folder metal stock on it and of course you know you can't get the proper cheek weld on that and if you don't have the proper cheek weld it's it's getting a running start on your cheek and you know by the end of day two she had like a grapefruit size thing on her cheek well the whole class on when we were doing the night shoot, we went, we left the range. You froze up with. Yeah, all right. The the whole class, we we did our our day long at the range, and we all went to a restaurant to eat dinner with each other before we went back to do the night shoot. Right. And the wait staff at the restaurant tried to do an intervention and sneak her out of the restaurant to get her away from this abusive guy because they thought that the bruising on her face <laughs> was from it and i'm sitting there going oh there's some abuse taking place here but it's not because he's you know he's oh, wow. it's because he gave her that shotgun oh man oh well, yeah. when i was with the marine security forces down in panama we had a couple of posts that we had to stand and because of the close confined quarters we had taken mossberg 590s which was our our shotguns at the time which are great shotguns right those are good mm-hmm. shotguns but we put, uh, get to remember, this was, you know, 1993. And so Star was like, what you got. And yeah. so we had Star pistol grip, 
and foregrip on these shotguns. And they look really cool, right? So I get there, uh, you know, I'm the new, uh, you know, platoon commander and, uh, you know, I'm a junior captain because I had an 80-man platoon. It was a huge platoon. And, you know, I see the, these shotguns are on posts and I'm like, yeah, they're pretty cool. I said, so have you guys ever fired those, you know, trained with them out on the range? They're like, no, 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 sir. We only stand post with them. I'm like, no, no, that ain't going to happen. So, you know, I arrange, you know, uh, for the next training evolution uh, to get, you know, standard stock 590s out on the post. We get those there for training. And I'm like, look, guys, uh, birdshot, you're not going to have a problem. And so we start running double odd buck or slug. You're going to have to, you know, really push that out there and use a lot of bicep to keep it from coming back. You're going to eat it. And so I demonstrate it. And they're like, cool. So the Marines start training. Well, I, you know, I had a couple of, you know, smaller male Marines that, you know, boom, crack tooth. <laughs> it's like, oh, shit. <laughs> he goes down to dental. All right. Mm. You know, a couple of Marines later, boom, crack tooth. <laughs> down to the dental he goes. And then and at that point, all the Marines are like, yeah, we're done carrying that thing on post. <laughs> we're done. We're <laughs> and, uh, and so they, they you know, they quickly realized that, uh, yeah, you know, when they do those shit in the movies, yeah, they're shooting like yeah. blanks, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, try double odd buck or slug, ain't gonna work, yeah. Yeah, it's funny, earlier you mentioned that your Marines got 20 rounds, and uh, yeah, now you can yeah. go carry this in the thing. Five rounds in the police academy. Five rounds. Yeah, get someone killed. And, you know, when I made it up to field training officer, and you know, one of my jobs was to go around and inspect weapons and stuff in the in the vehicles and stuff. I would find shotguns with the shotgun shells loaded in backwards, and everything. And there were people riding around. Yeah. And so you got a guy that, or a gal that, yeah. they don't know enough about the shotgun to properly load the ammo in the right direction in it, yeah. but they're qualified to to get out and use this weapon in public. Yeah. Yeah. It's sad. It's yeah. and it's scary. I mean, you know that, uh, and you know, and I. So every time I hear this, well, the only you know law enforcement uh, military should be the only ones with those guns, and I'm like, do you know, you you don't know how poorly trained they are. <laughs> um, part of my qualification when I get to run it the way I want to run it is if you don't know how to load the shotgun correctly, you failed the qualification. Yeah, because yeah. I'll tell you, we use the term gun box ready, which is the same as cruiser ready in, in other yeah, places. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll tell them to load the shotgun to gun box ready to start the course of fire. And if they can't do that, you're not qualified to carry that weapon. Absolutely. And at some point in time during the usage of the shotgun, they have to unload it on command. Yeah. And if that unload is racking the shells out, ah, you're not qualified yeah. to use that you're weapon. Qualified to carry it. I don't care what your score on the paper is, you're not qualified. That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah. two sixty, so the, the hmm. it went from five days to three, but to make it equivalent to the old two sixty, mm -hmm. there's you do shotgun tactical problems. Mm -hmm. So you know, so if you were one of the five full five days where you did the simulators and everything, right. and you do the two sixty, and then the uh, SATP shotgun SATP, uh, you know. Um, so throw that out. So if you, if you want to come back to do that, that's what you'd have to sure. do. Yeah. To make it five days, you'd have to do that. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, they went to the three days because they're just a lot of people <laughs> just were getting beat up by it. And uh, Bill Jeans told a really funny story about how um, when they first started doing the shotgun program and, you know, Robbie talked about, you know, how it 
came about. And, uh, but Bill says when he started, you know, teaching, he says, you know, these people would come and they would shoot the shotgun and, you know, the shoulders were really sore, you know, so someone would wear those shoulder buffs, you know, the mm-hmm. competition shooters. And he said that one of the students, and I can't remember if it was a male or a female student, came back the next day and, you know, he's running the gun and, you know, and everybody's looking at him like, how come your shoulder doesn't hurt? He goes, well, I went to the store and I bought a bunch of super, super absorbent maxi pads and he peeled off the backs and he would put it on his t-shirt and then put his shirt over it. He goes, Gene said that night, <laughs> the whole class went and bought <laughs> all these super absorbent maxi pads to put under their shirt by their shoulder. <laughs> but it worked. It worked. Yeah. So that was the old school sucking it in yeah. your shoulder. You know? yeah. But, you know, if you mount the shotgun correctly, you don't have a recoil problem. No, you don't. No. No. Yeah, you know, you know, Bill Jeans is a name that is almost universally revered amongst knowing firearms instructors, yeah. but he's not well known to the general firearms public. Yeah. Could you tell us some more about Bill Jeans? Well, Bill's background, he was a, actually an 08 artilleryman, and he was in Quezon during the siege, uh, lost three of his best friends there, uh, and uh, he'll tear up talking about them. Uh, Bill wears his emotions on his sleeves. I think he's always been that way, but uh, just a great man. So he, after uh, Vietnam, I uh, became a, a police officer in um, a town uh, that's next to Sacramento. Oh, what the hell is it? It begins with a C and I, can, now I can't think of the Clovis, Clovis, uh, California. And, uh, you know, did a 20 plus year career there. And of course, started coming to Gunsight and, got invited on staff and he was an instructor here at Gunside. And then Jeff invited, uh, Jeff would go through training directors or operations managers fairly quickly. quickly. <laughs> I could see where working for Jeff could be, you know, uh, you know, a challenge. Uh, <laughs> it was just, just, that's just, it was Jeff's personality. And I, and I have great love and respect and, you know, for Jeff, but it, he could be a difficult person I'm sure to work for. Um, and, uh, he, so he hired Bill, Bill moved over, bought a 40 acre parcel here at Raven guard, built a house, uh, and worked for Jeff for a few years before then Jeff ended up selling to, uh, Richard G and, uh, you know, Bill was not happy about that. Uh, you know, did not enjoy working for G and was upset, uh, that Jeff kind of, as he said, you know, felt like Jeff kind of bailed on him, you know, he, you know, really, because he came over to work for Jeff, not G. Uh-huh. Uh, but after uh, uh, Jerry McCown, I think, tells that story pretty well about the falling out there, and uh, uh, Bill went on the on the road, started teaching, and uh, did well. You know, uh, did very well. Um, you know, out there earning a good reputation uh, outside of Gunside as an as a as an instructor. Uh, and so, uh, I, I met Bill, uh, through a friend of mine, uh, that, uh, he, matter of fact, I met that guy in the 350 shoot off. He and I were in the shoot off. I won the shoot off, got won the man on man in my 350, got another e-ticket. Uh, he, you know, <laughs> as the, the, the distinction of being the first pilot, first place loser, <laughs> but a good guy. And, 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 and uh, and he introduced me to Bill Jeans. And so uh, I, you know, um, after I started working for Aimpoint, uh, 
had Bill come on board as pro staff and he worked for me as a pro staff member at military shows. And, and uh, you know, I, I did, did uh, would, he would teach classes in Kern County, California. And I would go up and Bill was always nice about, I'd shoot the class, but Bill would give me the time to do, you know, uh, product demos, endpoint product demos and stuff during the class. And, uh, you know, so I got very, you know, very close uh, yeah. with Bill and just a great, great human being. Um, you know, very, very passionate, uh, passionate about our Republic, passionate about our constitution, you know, pa passionate about, uh, you know, our, our civil rights, just a, a good man. Yeah. You've mentioned Scotty Reitz a little bit uh, previously. Uh, what about Reitz and Magic? Can you tell us? Well, uh, you know, both Scotty and Larry, of course, were, were the Metro uh, Deep Platoon, which everybody knows as LAPD SWAT, but it's really LAPD Metro Deep Platoon is the correct title. And, and Scotty was one of the younger guys. So John Helms, Larry Mudgett, uh, I think they were like the second generation guys on uh, LAPD Metro. And, and Scotty would have been probably like you know, near, uh, you know, maybe third gen or, or really maybe the, the tail end of second gen, really. And uh, interestingly enough, when the Marine Corps stood up the Marine Expeditionary Unit Special Operation Capables uh, with the Force Reconnaissance community doing the extraneous hostage rescue stuff, they leaned on LAPD Metro Depot to stand up the first special operations training group there at Camp Pendleton. And they, uh, I know it was Scotty, I know it was Larry, I think also John Helms. They came down and they uh, lived down there for six months training uh, the force reconnaissance community um, on close quarter battle, all CQB techniques and everything. And, and, uh, and so when Scotty started up international training studios, ITTS, and he, he would train civilians and uh, law enforcement and Hollywood actors uh, for, um, you know, uh, there at it's Eagle's Nest. It's an, it's a shooting range in the Los Angeles national forest, uh, uh, public shooting range in the Los Angeles National Forest, but he has a portion of it that, that's his, that he's been leasing long-term and, and uh, trains a lot, of, a lot of people there. He's, everybody, you know, refers to him as Uncle Scotty, and, oh. and, and he's got some interesting picadillos himself where, you know, everybody jokes about Uncle Scotty because if it's, it doesn't matter, he, he'll have an, if there's an optic on a gun and he has a way to put you know, 90 mile an hour tape on and masking tape on and he's got it masking taped. If there's, you know, something on, you know, a holster, he'll have it masking taped to his leg or so. It's just, it's hilarious how he uses masking tape for everything. <laughs> and it, we all kind of joke about it, but uh, he is a, uh, uh, you know, again, another, you know, some people, uh, he's old school, but I'll tell you what, uh, that dude's been there, done that more times than, than anybody and uh, he knows what works, was it doesn't work. I remember when I took the shotgun class from him, you know, a lot of people, they like to run the brass down on their side saddle. Mm. And, and Scotty runs all brass up, or sometimes they'll run like, you know, buck down and slug up or vice versa. Uh. And when I was taking the class, I noticed Scotty ran all of his uh, brass up. And uh, so I asked him, and, and he, he told the whole class, but he says, yeah, during the Rodney King riots, we're running around, running, gunning with the shotguns, and all of us at that time were running brass down because it was quicker to, you know, load. He goes, and we would be, you know, we'd get ready to load, and like there's no shotgun shells because they had all worked themselves loose and fell out. 
He goes, and that's when we changed and we started running brass up because wow. that prevented that from happening. He goes, it takes a little longer, but at least you got the rounds there when you do it. Yeah. Sure is better than fast. Yes. Yeah. Yep. If I have to pick between the two, I'm going to pick sure. Yep. You know, it's yeah. one thing when you're, you're shooting a course of fire in a, in a mm -hmm. competition. Okay. Yeah. They're yeah. not going to come loose probably in the short span right. that you're doing that. But yeah. when you're, you know, running, chasing people, jumping fences, I mean, doing real stuff, yeah. whole different perspective. Yeah. yeah, I will take a moment here and give a plug to the Eridus Industries uh, quick detached carrier. Yeah. You could probably trust carrying brass down in it. Yeah. But in none of the Velcro um, elastic side saddles yeah, would I go brass down. Stars or any of those. Yeah. yeah. None of that would I go brass down. Um, for precisely that reason. And, uh, matter of fact, I had, uh, I think it was an STAC brand uh, Velcro elastic side saddle. Yeah. And it was worn enough that it was really fast getting the loads out. And when I was at 260, um, I went to Walmart the night before we did our, our school drills and stuff to get something else. And I was walking through Sporting Goods and I noticed they had some, uh, winchester triple a hole yeah. bird shot in there and i was having some problems with the the bird shot that i had sticking in my chamber and so i grabbed a box of those and i take those out and i'm so happy to go into school drill because these things are so slick and i went to grab a round and it <laughs> right over my head that's like yeah those are going away yep. and so uh, i've now i have the vein even if it's an elastic side saddle on one of mine it's a vein yeah, uh, but i but I've been trying to switch over to the Eridus as yeah. I can, as they become available and everything. Yeah, Adam Roth thinks good stuff. Yeah. 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 Um, anything about Mr. Mudget? Oh, Larry, uh, I was really interesting. Again, my 350 class. Uh, I had, so Giles, Ed Stock, and Larry Mudget. Mm -hmm. You want to talk about, I, and I didn't, I knew of Larry, but I didn't know, and I didn't know Larry was going to be one of the coaches because you don't really know who yeah. they are typically. And I was like, whoa, this is like, I'm in the presence of like legacy right here. And Larry is one of the nicest guys, just a true gentleman, a, a true gentleman in our industry. And, and uh, I, I would encourage anybody to get a chance to train with Larry do that. And, and his experience base and knowledge base, just unbelievable. Yeah. 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 yeah I was, I had the pleasure of going out with uh, Wayne Dove, Daryl Bolke, John Holshin, yeah. Uh, John, John Hearn. Uh, I wouldn't say I know you guys yeah. have gone with you just to um, go be with Larry. Oh man, that was a fun class. Right that back. was, you right know, because because you had Larry, which is one of the preeminent people in this business doing oh, yeah. stuff. But then the other students, man, it was fun to get up and start class each morning. Yeah. At breakfast, and then we would go to class. Yeah. And then we would come back to the hotel and have class again. It, yeah. it, it, yeah. it was. It was a very great learning experience. Oh, just, just to sit in that room and just, yeah, listen to when uh, you got a whole bunch of great people with a you yeah. know, wealth of experience and knowledge of their own. But yeah, to be there, yeah. it's the same way. And it was cool to get his insight on a lot of stuff that we kind of historically knew, yeah. like the events. Yeah. But to get his insight from yeah. being there or the, yeah. the behind the scenes political yeah. machinations of the organization. Yeah. 
and and how this goes and really really yeah because larry larry told the story of when he and john helms used the harry's technique in that one rescue and uh, larry of course tell it in a way you're, you're just dying laughing and john is much more somber about it you know, mm -hmm. he, you know he, when john tells a story it's just you know so much more serious you know but yeah. larry tells it you're just rolling laughing about the whole thing yeah, i love some of the behind the scenes at lapd stories he told us and you know it's funny there was a tv series years ago called homicide life on the streets and it was about the baltimore uh, pd yeah. homicide unit and the same guy who wrote that wrote the the series the wire yes okay for hbo and there was a line in the book for which the tv series the homicide was based on so logic and critical thinking are really the engines that propel the police department forward <laughs> And you can you can apply that to so many organizations. You can apply that in the military, no problem. <laughs> and uh, you know, I teach college classes part time, and I was having a discussion with another faculty member today about something going on. And I said, you have to remember, this institution and all institutions of of learning, as far as on the college level, are institutions of higher education, not higher thinking. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so, so, so so don't confuse the two. There, there is a difference. Higher yeah. institutions and higher thinking, two different things. Yeah. yeah, higher learning, higher thinking, not the same thing. Yeah. Um, when we were talking before the show, you mentioned John Farnham. John is a, uh, John and Vicky are dear friends. And, and I met John uh, through uh, Gary Greco, because Gary hosted John at uh, Fort Meade when I was, you know, headquarters Marine Corps and going up. And so I did uh, John's advanced pistol class. And, and, uh, so after OIF-1, uh, you know, we're back. We're starting to work, do the workup for OIF-2, you know, because we're going back in. We're going to relieve the Army and, and uh, um, you know, the uh, – I don't want my brain fading on me now uh, – Al-Assad uh, province. And, um, and so I said, you know what? I, we need to reach the officers and staff NCOs to get them good pistol training one, because that's the sidearm, you know, that's what they carry predominantly, but I want to expose them to what real firearms training can be like. And so I reached out to John, brought John in, and he and Vicky came, and he did probably, I want to say it was like, hosted him like four or five times. And it it opened up a lot of eyes, because they began, because then I, I would always end up with like, okay, so now I understand the difference between what we've been getting trained as Marines, the standard you know, range stuff between now fighting with firearms, you know. Uh, and so uh, that led them to understand that that's, and I say, we need to be doing this with the, with the rifles too. And they're like, uh, and the shotguns. And then that got them understanding that, you know, there was more to firearms training than what they'd been exposed to previously. And so, you know, some people would complain like, well, why are we spending all that money to, you know, train people with pistols? We don't fight wars with pistols. And I'm like, it's not so much about fighting the war with the pistols, as much as teaching them that they've got to fight the, the war with their minds. And they need to understand that there is a level of training that they've received and it's not the level of training they need. And that would open the door for them being leaders to then start getting their Marines trained for, you know, better training for carbine and shotgun and all of those things. Uh -huh. and, and it helped. It, it did open those. It did. It started that momentum uh, to do that. And, uh, 
And so John and, and Vicki, of course, became dear friends. And, I, and I'll tell you an interesting story. Chris Bourne, who I talked about earlier. Now, Chris is a promoted now. Uh, we were majors together at Marine Forces Pacific Command, but he was senior to me by a few years. So he got promoted to lieutenant colonel right before he left there. Uh, I was three years behind him in grade. So it was another three years before I got promoted. But he and I went into uh, both Ethiopia and Eritrea, Africa uh, together a couple of times. And, and uh, we uh, uh, traveled you know, to some very interesting places together. Uh, Chris gets promoted. He becomes, uh, I think, the recruit regiment commander for Marine Corps Recruit Depot's uh, Paris Island. And that's where, I think still this, this time, I think this, all the female uh, enlisted recruits go through Paris Island still. I don't think they're putting them through San Diego yet or, or if they intend to. All that's changing since Obama, but I, you know. Uh, Chris calls me and he says, hey, um, you know anybody that would be really good about teaching my primary marksmanship instructors on how to teach females? And I, I, uh, and I said, well, what, what's going on? He says, well, he goes, we have, I want to say it was like uh, an 80% pass rate for male recruits, but only like a 40% pass rate for female recruits on the, on the known distance qual course for the, for the rifle. And he said, he goes, all my instructors are male. And, and he goes, he goes, I know we can do better. And so I remember, you know, talking with John and Vicki and Vicki, you know, telling me about how she'd been brought to the FBI Academy to teach their instructors on how to teach females. Uh, so I reached out to John and Vicki and then I put them and Vicki in touch with Chris and he, she went and taught, I think, two different classes for them down there. And the, uh, the rate at which the females recruits passed after she did the training matched that of the males after that. And, and a lot of factors involved both how men and women communicate differently, but you know, there's just this whole aspect of understanding just human anatomy. And, and, and some of this I picked up from Louie, but you know, Vicki really uh, emphasized as well is that, you know, male, female anatomy, I know it's gonna be shocking for our audience, but yes, we're different. Okay, you know, contrary to, you know, what the woke crowd is telling us, we are different. And, you know, if you have a female whose hip bones are the same height as a male, the male is still going to be three to four inches taller because her torsos are longer. And that changes center of gravity uh, differently for men and for women. And the other thing is upper body strength for women is not the equal of males. It's a fact. It's just how it is. And because their their legs theoretically are longer because they have shorter torsos, their center of gravity is different. And so one of the ways, one, Vicky did a great job of explaining male Marines about, okay, this is how you have to communicate with women. This is how they receive and process information. So you got to communicate differently with them. And then also physically they're different, which means like, here, let me give you a rifle and now I'm going to hang and she would, she'd have like a five pound weight with a piece of string hanging on the end of their barrel. And that's how it feels for that female recruit to hold that rifle. And this is why they would lean back and, you know, be completely off balance because their center of gravity was different. And then the last, she would talk about, you know, bra straps. You know, if 
most of the female recruits, I believe, probably wear sports bras, but yeah. if they weren't, they were wearing bras that had bra straps. Guess where that adjustment strap would be, right? Where the butt of the rifle would be. Yeah. And now they're feeling that every time the gun recoils, especially shotguns. And, you know, just all little things like that. And I'm sure there was more that she, she taught them, but those are the takeaways that I remember. And, uh, you know, she, she opened up the eyes of a lot of uh, male instructors to understand that, you know, this, when we're working with females uh, as instructors, it's different. And we have to understand that and, and uh, be cognizant of it. Yep. Uh, you mentioned you had a good Travis Haley story. Okay. So, uh, you know, it's funny. I, I've known Travis uh, since 2008 or nine. So I knew Travis when he had a little company in Hawaii called Simply Dynamics. And he was still uh, Marine Corps Reserve, Force, Fourth Force. And his uh, wife at the time, she was a Navy doctor and uh, dermatologist. And so Tra I get this email from Travis saying, hey, you don't know me. He had already done the Blackwater thing, uh, but nobody really knew him yet, you know, and uh, he says, hey, uh, you know, I'm, I've been doing a lot of training with HPD and, you know, that new Aimpoint Micro looks like, you know, that'd be a really great optic. And and I already you know talked with Mark LaRue about making a mount for it for, for carbines. And I said, yeah, OK, Travis. So I sent him one and uh, he starts working with it and then. And then, you know, Travis and I communicate some more. So Travis used to, he did uh, at least, I, I know, I, I'm pretty sure he did two military shows for me as pro staff. So actually, Travis worked for me as pro staff before Travis became Travis. And uh, the last one he worked for me, he said that, he goes, yeah, you know, Rich Fitzpatrick and I are putting together a training company. Rich Fitzpatrick owns Magpul. Uh -huh. and, and Rich was a first recon Marine. And uh, Travis had been first recon, then did second force, and then got out and went to fourth force in reserves. But so the, when he stood up uh, uh, Magpul Dynamics, I mean, Chris Costa, you know, Travis says to me, he goes, hey, Fred, we're going to make these training videos. It's going to be like cutting edge, best quality video. You know, it's not going to be like these cheap videos that, you know, we'd, we'd seen in the industry prior, you know. Because yeah, when he first mentioned to me, I'm like, really, Travis, videos, really? And he's like, no, no, you don't get it. It's going to be really high quality. And he goes, we're going to shoot a carbine video in Virginia. You know, hey, you know, do you want to be in it? And I'm like, yeah, I'd love to be in it, but I got to be at this uh, military unit that week. I can't be there, but I'll send Kyle Harth, who Kyle was uh, Army SF, uh, worked for me at any point. Great. Kyle's like brother, great guy. And John Enlow, John Boy uh, from... Uh, you know, uh, Aimpoint, he's the Maytag repairman of Aimpoint sites in the U.S. Uh, and uh, so if you watch that DVD, you'll see both Kyle and John in, the, in there. And uh, yeah, so they went and were in the video. And that video, I mean, that was, I mean, Travis and Chris took off from there and, mm -hmm. you know, went on to do good things. And Tra Travis, uh, I, I, I uh, through Jim Fuller, uh formerly rifle dynamics uh, he's doing stuff with travis and he's got a, a shop building eight gays there in, in travis's uh, building and uh I, I last time i saw travis uh we were talking about just what he's doing currently i mean he's 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 doing extremely well uh with his nylon gear and, and uh, some 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 stuff he's doing with 
you know, simu uh, uh, video simulators and training and stuff. And, you know, uh, Travis is really, really happy for him. He's doing really good stuff there. You know, those videos became so mainstream in their day yeah. that I bought a Colt 6920 Magpul edition yeah. and the DVD was included with, with the rifle. So how many people bought those rifles and then, oh, here's this training DVD. And, and a lot of people in the industry give those videos credit for bringing training mainstream. He, he, uh, he, yeah, he really did. He and Chris kind of knocked that one out of the park when they did that, you know, uh, yeah. Uh, we are at about an hour and a half, and I know there was a couple other names we yeah. wanted to mention, uh, but you also want to talk about metal finishes. Do you well, want to talk um, about the other names? Or you want to talk about metal yeah, finishes? We may be getting a little too long. Uh, we can uh, save that for another show if you want, or, or we okay. can talk about it now. You're calling my brother. Your choice. Would you, uh, we haven't talked about Bob Brown, and we haven't talked about LaRue. Those are the other two names that you mentioned. Yeah. We, and could, then, we could save those for another show, and that way you know, we won't bore people and lose people you know <laughs> all i care about is just more listeners than john hearn that's all i care about <laughs> <laughs> well you know we've probably already succeeded with that that'll, that'll, so, bump, that'll bump me up above d to c level then <laughs> <laughs> i'm just gonna send him a message like you got two easter eggs and then just leave, <laughs> leave it at that so yeah let's just uh, let's do another episode where we talk about metal finishes and maybe yeah. go back uh because I know you want to talk some about Gary Greco and, and as well, yeah, yeah. and uh, I, I, I got plenty of time, but I know you've got an engagement you got to get to. Yeah, I know. And, I, I do have to kind of head out to uh, that that uh, event with those Marines, so I got to get going. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, once again, uh, I thank you for all of the efforts you've been putting in to help line up some of the, the great guests that we've been getting. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll uh, try to get you a few more if you want. I can reach out to John and Vicky Farnham. And absolutely, and I, I, I know John and Vicky. But if you would like to grease the skids there a little yeah, bit yeah, too, maybe, sure. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's it's been fun. You know, talking to a lot of the people back that were when all this stuff was forming and and everything, yeah. and then and then they're still involved today. And I just want to make sure we get all this documented yeah, and absolutely. and have it as a place to go. And uh, I can tell you that, you know, my travels around the gun community, I'm starting to hear from, you know, like in my class this past weekend, students are bringing up stuff they heard in the episodes and stuff. Yeah. And, and it's, it's fun to see that it's, it is serving its intended purpose of getting into yeah. that. that I mean, that's, it's a lot of, you know, time on your effort on your part to put it all together, but I'm really glad you are because you're capturing a lot of history. Uh, and if we, if we don't care, and I, I said this so many times, we don't capture this. Mm -hmm. It's gone. I mean, the stories that Robbie would tell me and I'm just, ah, I wish I could, you know, yeah. film this because, you know, yeah. I won't be able to repeat them as well as he tells them. He's one of those guys that's just a great storyteller. Like he and Pat yeah. Rogers, you know, just phenomenal yeah. storytellers. Yeah. Of course, I'm just sitting in my kitchen having a conversation. It's not like there's a whole lot of work going on here. <laughs> so, I tell people I'm just having phone calls and y'all get to listen in. That's what the show is. Yeah. The show is. Well, you're doing it well. You're doing it well, well my friend. Well, well, thank you very much. And th again, thank you for uh, for all the behind the scenes uh, help that you've been. And thank you for coming on tonight. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for hosting me. Thank you. Right. And uh, um, to the audience, we know that your number one uh, important asset is your time. Thank you for choosing to spend it with us. <laughs>